Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. I've long maintained that the single greatest difference between our society and those of drastically different times and places comes down to science. My favorite way of appreciating this point is through examining Aristotle. If you want to understand politics or aesthetics or tragedy, it's important to read Aristotle, not just because he was the first person to say many notable things, although that's true too, but because many of his insights still hold true today. On the other hand, if you want to understand how the physical or biological worlds operate, you're naturally going to give Aristotle a pass, despite the fact that he spent a good chunk of his life preoccupied with investigating those matters as well. It's hardly a secret that the world was quite simply transformed by the work of Isaac Newton, which so conspicuously set the stage for the Industrial Revolution and everything that followed, a central insight that UCLA historian Margaret Jacob has examined from many different angles and perspectives, and my conversation with her was certainly no exception. I went into university to college um, wanting to major in science. Oh. That makes and, sense, given your uh, right. Proclivities. And I came in having um, had done hydroponic experiments that won some prizes and stuff like that. And then I did freshman chemistry, which is very dull. Mm. And I, meanwhile, was taking courses. Some of the upper year chemistry courses are also dull, by the way. I'm, yeah, <laughs> I can I can imagine that this might be the case. That so you have to be a graduate student. <laughs> so I was taking courses in history and literature and the usual things. And where was this? Uh, a small Catholic women's college in Brooklyn called St. Joseph's. Mm-hmm. It, it still exists. It's just uh, coming up to its 100th anniversary, um, but it's now co-ed. I was just there for my 50th reunion. And the, the courses in history were just so much more interesting. Plus, I grew up in a household where Cromwell was alive and well. Really? And the ogre of choice. And so my mother... Were there Irish roots? And, and... Yes, my mother's from Ireland. Okay. And she was steeped in Irish history and Republican history. Her brother was a member of Stormont when it, when it still existed, the Irish... Well, now it exists again, but the Northern Ireland Parliament, which was totally gerrymandered. Out of 70 seats, I think there were seven or... No, 11 for Catholics, and he had one of those. Mm-hmm. So history was just part and parcel. I remember many, many years later, after I had worked in British history and Dutch history, and my mother said to me once, ah, sure, I'd wish you'd do the history of your own people. (laughs) (laughs) Did you feel any pressure at at that point? No, (laughs) no. (laughs) Well, I have written a bit on Irish republicanism in the 18th century, but, you know, it was was just this sense of frustration that she had. (laughs) Well, mothers can never be satisfied, or at least fully satisfied. Exactly, exactly. You see that... Uh, engraving there. It's uh, the first known pictorial representation of Freemasonry. So I've worked on Freemasonry. It dates from the 1730s. One Christmas we were having relatives over. My mother called me up and she said, will you take that picture down? I thought, what 
tissue picture. What is she talking about? And she says, Cousin Rose doesn't want to see the Freemasons on your wall. Because in Northern Ireland, the, the Masonic lodges are tied in deeply with the Orange Order. Huh. So for her, this was... So it was deeply offensive. Yes. So I took it down. How, how, long, did, how long had she been offended? I mean, oh, probably was from it the years? Moment, I, yeah, probably from the moment <laughs> I put it up. But she wasn't going to do anything about this until Cousin Rose was coming. And then that was just like too much, you know. So some battles you, you don't fight. I sure. took it down. They came. They had a great Christmas. I put it back up. <laughs> so uh, so getting back, you were at St. Joseph's, mm -hmm. um, and you were bored by your freshman chemistry uh, class, and, and you had been taking other classes at the same time uh, in history and literature and so forth. And so you, you my words, obviously, so correct me uh, if I'm wrong, but you were drifting then towards the humanities after having the original intention of doing science. Mm -hmm. And my, my immediate reaction is, well, who cares about chemistry? Everybody knows that's boring. What, what about physics? I mean, why, why, didn't, why, didn't you, why didn't you go there instead of, instead of history? Or maybe pure math? Yeah, I, I, did, I certainly did pure math, and I, I made a living on the side teaching geometry to high school s students mm -hmm. who were coming up for the regents, whatever it was. I don't know. I just never, I never moved over toward the physical sciences. I stayed in chemistry, and then I became so. I was very lucky in that the women who taught us, um, the nuns, had PhDs from Columbia, Yale, and they they were serious wow. scholars. Wow. And so the quality of the teaching in history was very high. Um, and then you just become good at something very quickly. You know, it's just luck. Um, when I went to graduate school, I realized that all of the theology and philosophy that I'd had to take, because these were all required courses, and which I hated. And um, I have to say, I joined an underground cell at the college, and we published a newspaper, or we printed, we mimeographed a sure. newspaper called The Lutheran. Really? <laughs> Wow, you were really rebelling big really, time. Really, really. <laughs> when I think back on it. We, you were quite the disturber. Yes. Because uh, I'm not, you know, on camera allowed to say the obvious, you yeah. know, prefatory word that goes before that. But, yeah, uh, yeah. The, the, wow. So uh, I was quite alienated. And I grew, I, I stopped being Catholic by my sophomore year. But I stayed on because I had to. There was, there was no other secular education that would accept those credits. I really? would have, I would have, uh, would have lost a year. Despite the PhDs of the nuns and all the rest of that. But all the philosophy and all the theology, all of which were required, not to mention the two credit course in Gregorian chant, all of those. You took hold, hold back up. You, 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 <laughs> <laughs> you took a, a, a credit course in Gregorian chant. Gregorian chant, chant was required. Can you, can you still do it? No, I no. couldn't do it then. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I still remember Father Cantley, poor man. At the end of the academic year, you had your you had to sing it. And that was your exam grade, yeah, yeah. and I can still remember this man listening. What he must have felt. I mean, it was it was a slaughter of innocence, sounds that were never meant to be heard in a classroom, never mind a church. I mean, it was very difficult. It, I yeah, couldn't. I'm do sure it. he's heard something something, something similar. Some, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but all those credits wouldn't translate. You, you couldn't, City College, or, you, nobody would take those. 
So it meant you would lose at least a year, if not more. So I was stuck, as it were. Um, but the other thing was that this is also Vatican II. It was a time of great reform, great stirring. Mm -hmm. And uh, my group in the college embraced all of this. And we became kind of notorious. <laughs> so how many of you were there in this in this group? In this circle? Of, 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 of Lutherans, yeah. as it were. Right, yeah, yeah. There were about a dozen of us out of a class of only 160. Wow. So there was a large rebellious core. Yes. And, and did many of the others also go on to graduate school and, and, and other such activities? Um, they all went on to some kind of higher, whether they went and got masters in social work, one became a lawyer. Um, no one became a scholar. I'm the only one who took that particular path. Um, Do you still have contact with anyone? Oh yeah, I was just back for my 50s. Yeah, that's right, you yeah, said that, yeah. sorry. But it was not a, I mean, when I left I was quite alienated and um, the faculty refused to put me forward for any of the national fellowships that you could compete for, the Woodrow Wilsons and all these things to go to graduate school. Because of your attitude? Yeah, because of my attitude. I still remember the day the, the head nun called me in to tell me this news, and she had been very good to me. And she was practically weeping. I mean, she was obviously so upset. Uh, and I, it took me a long time, as in 48 years, to forgive them for that. Because you just don't do that to a kid, even if a kid's a pain in the ass. I mean, the fact is sure. that, you know, I was an A student. I was going to Cornell. I mean, what more did they want? You yeah. know, any of it. But you did forget and forgive them eventually. I did. Yes. So what 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 tipped the balance? So the forty eight years is a long time. It's I a mean, long, was there long something time. That happened, uh... Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, my my closest friend from those years is still my closest friend, and she kept me in touch with all of our other classmates in our circle. And then the the fifty three union was coming, and it turned out she was put in charge of it, and I felt I had to, I had to do something. I went to this fiftieth union, which was quite something, and. Um, I had to leave. I was going to Amsterdam that night, so I could only stay until 3 o'clock. And as I was just about to leave, I went over to one of the quite elderly nuns in 95, and I, I leaned over and I said, Sister, it's Peg Candy. And she stood upright, bolt upright, turned to me. She said, Oh, you've become a famous scholar. And I just burst into tears. I was just so overwhelmed that somebody kind of noticed, you know, that I'd gone off and done these things. But it was a sense that she valued what, what we did. And given another life, a different era, she might very well have been the same. In fact, she was a very fine teacher of English literature. But, yeah, it was just this incredible moment. Then off I went to Amsterdam. So. Wow. Certainly leaves a mark. Goodness, I mean, as you say, it's often difficult to appreciate that other people are watching or listening, uh, regardless of what they may have done or, or how you might have interpreted their actions. Right, right. Um, I want to talk about. So we went back to chemistry. We went back to the fact that um, your chemistry repelled you, as it were, and <laughs> and you were attracted by. The, the eloquence and the ability and the, the intrinsic interest of some of these other fields. 
But of course, science is something that uh, you, you've, you hold near and dear and you've always held near and dear. You're always looking at, at, at the impact and the effect of science both through the secularization process, uh, through the societal process, the transformation process. This is something that, that's never really, really left you. Is it fair to say that that's looking at the impact and the role of science in society is something that uh, you've constantly engaged with throughout your, your research career? Yes, yes, I think that's right. I think if I were to try to boil it down, I have been interested all along in the impact of the Newtonian synthesis on religion, on thought in general, on um, social formations, uh, scientific clubs, um, even in, in this extended way on Freemasonry, because Freemasons you know, give credence to the grand architect of the universe and all that sort of thing. So always in the back of my mind, there's been this interest in what happens in a society, in a culture, where suddenly, for the first time ever, you have a law that actually explains the way the planets move and will enable you to predict where a planet will be at any given time. And it works. It works uniformly. It works in China. It works, you know, and and uh, this captured the imagination of European thinkers in the 18th century. Sure. I mean, no one was re remote from it. It also captured the attention of um, critics of established order, who could then argue, well, human beings can construct order, and they don't need absolute monarchs. They don't need um, the boot of the church in your face, et cetera, right. et cetera. So I got very, well, I had a very shrewd, very shrewd mentor who in the mid-60s when I was in grad school was going into the Newton papers which had been almost totally unexplored up until that point. Well, they only came into the public domain in the late 1930s. Why? Why did it take so long? Um, they, were, they were owned by some private individual? Yeah, they okay. were owned privately and they came up for sale at Sotheby's in 1936, I think it was. And at that time, um, institutions were struggling financially. It was not a time of great prosperity. And Cambridge University sent John Maynard Keynes down to London. Read the bit on them. Well, it's a bit, or to, to look them over and decide whether they were worth bit bidding worthy. on. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And out of that experience, he wrote a wonderful essay that is still read called Isaac Newton, um, Last of the Magicians or First of the Modern, something like that. And what he saw was that there were thousands of pages of alchemy, not to mention theology and whatnot. Sure. Now, the university, in its unwisdom, decided it didn't want the alchemy, didn't want that stuff. You know, all they wanted was the math and the physics and you know, a little bit of the theology. And so those papers rattled around, the ones that were unbought, and eventually a um, Jewish book dealer in New York named Yehuda bought all the theology and alchemy papers, hmm. took them to New York, and after his death, his widow gave them to Hebrew University in Jerusalem. But the, the, the physics, the mathematics, a lot of the theology, and a lot of the natural philosophy was in Cambridge, and that's where Henry Gerlach went and worked on them.
and he he had an eye for uh, religious and philosophical themes and issues, and he saw Newton in many of his manuscripts struggling with how to express the relationship between matter and spirit, which is central, central to the break that science causes ultimately. And he brought back a Xerox of a, a draft that Newton had written to the 23rd query, which became the 31st query, the famous 31st query. And in this draft, uh, Newton says, and all of nature is attended with signs of life. And Henry gave me this and he said, tell me what you make of this. What, is, what do you think he's doing here? Now, I had done a master's thesis on the English freethinker John Tolan. Mm -hmm. And of course, the issue in that period was Spinozism. And it all just began to fit into place that Newton was trying to come to terms with the attack that was being launched on his thinking by people like Newton who were saying, ah, Newton's science proves that motion is inherent in matter, that spirit and matter right. are one and the same, which is Spinozism or pantheism. pantheism yeah. Yeah, what, yeah. And that, that sort of got me going and uh, my first book came out of that. And a small digression. So this notion, as I understand it, this notion of the radical enlightenment was a, was a phrase that was coined by you mm -hmm. um, and has subsequently been embellished upon uh, primarily but not exclusively by Jonathan Israel and, um, and um, my sense is, having read something else, another, uh, I think it was an interview that you gave, that um, let me see if I know, know how to put this, but maybe I shouldn't even try, but, uh, because I'm talking to you, so I can just get you to react to it. But a certain sense that, um, that maybe there's a little bit too much of an emphasis on Spinoza in terms of this notion of a, of a radical enlightenment. Is, oh, yeah. that, is, that, a fair, is that a fair comment? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Spinoza is important. So too is Hobbes, so too is a vast body of clandestine literature, the origins of which we'll never know. No, the world does not begin and end with Spinoza. Um, but I don't think, I mean, we could digress into my differences with Jonathan, but that seems to me to be sure. not that important, really. Sure, sure. Okay. So, um, this is, let me move into um, a little bit of, or, or rather let me move, let me try entirely differently to approach that sentence. Let me... <laughs> um, let's move into the first knowledge economy, um, and which is a huge gap, I realize, from what we've said, but I, I think we have to have some discontinuities in here, um, which is the third of a trilogy, uh, as it were. Rambo um, three. Right. <laughs> um, well, you do live in LA, so, uh, so that all makes sense. Is, is that the way it was built? I didn't notice that on the back cover? No, no, it was never meant as a third of a trilogy. No, but there's just, no, no Rambo there anyway. Yeah, no, I, no, I there's no. <laughs> right, right. It just sort of happened that way. It's that um, I put forward this thesis in 1987 in the cultural meaning of the scientific revolution that there was a link between the, the new science from Descartes, Boyle, and Newton to industrial development and that that linkage had, had not been understood. Hmm. So 
So I then complemented that with a, a series of case studies and published those in 97. And then this new book is a return again to the topic and a, a, an embrace of even more case studies because I had funding and I was able to go to um, the Low Countries, France and England, and once again. You still call it the Low Countries. Yeah. Nobody else calls it the Low Countries. I You're know. like 300 years out of date. I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, I, it's, it's true. In French, they call it the, you know, but they call it the Low Countries right. or whatever, but not in English. No, no, I know. Right. No, it's very early modern <laughs> phrase. I, I, I confess. I, <laughs> anyway, that's where you went. So. And, so, and I also did more case studies in England. and. I, no matter where I went, it seemed to me that the archival material leapt out and said, these entrepreneurs, industrial entrepreneurs, are on the factory floor trying to apply scientific principles. Right. And they leave us a very fulsome record of their doing just that. Um, the most recent review, the only review so far, is by O'Grady. It's a 32-page review, <laughs> typescript, not yet in print. I suppose in print it'll be about 15 pages. And he doesn't, he's not, this is not true. This cannot be the key to the early industrial revolution are semi-literate tinkerers. Mm. So that thesis is being repeated and repeated and repeated. Right. So I figure after three tries at it, if, if they don't get it, they'll never get it. Okay, well, I want to get to the responses uh, yes, uh, of course. later. But um, let's back up all the way. In fact, let's even back up to this, uh, this mixture of your scientific orientation and, and this field of research. And I have a, a personal question. So while I was reading this book, I realized that um, I didn't actually know very much about how these machines worked. And I know some scientific principles and so forth. But, but in terms of what was actually going on, what the history, what the origin of, of, of these things were, um, that's a fun thing to do, to actually look in these machines. And, and the remarkable thing now is if you go on, on Wikipedia or something, now they have all these animations and they have very clear descriptions about how these, these uh, the, the original machine from the Newcomen, is that the way you pronounce it? Newcomen, yeah. The, um, engine works all the way up to the watt, the steam engine and so forth. Is that intellectually interesting for you as well, the idea of actually really getting into to the, the, the mechanics of, of this, as well as from a historical perspective? Yes, it is, to the extent that I, I too, go on the internet and look at these moving pieces. I've also gone to various uh, industrial sites in Britain where you can see one of the old engines actually at work. Um, what interests me more than the actual putting the thing together was the people who tried to is the the people who tried to apply scientific principles to make them work right. You know, right so the problem of friction is is an absolutely fundamental problem and various um, approaches are taken some of them purely hand pure you know it, it's wrong i think to say oh well it's science and the hands are here no fr frequently it's all together but I can show John Marshall in his Leeds textile factory trying to apply Newtonian principles to, this, to the operation of bobbins and to the problem of friction. So it's, all of this, is, is, it's wrong to see it as separated. 
you know, we are the ones, our sociology creates the history of science, the history of technology, the history of music, the history of this. That's not the way human beings experience the world. Yeah. And that seems to be a constant refrain, this idea of fighting back against these somewhat pat, trite cliches, interpretive cliches of what, of what actually happened. So a constant refrain in the first knowledge economy is there are these economic historians who say that <clears throat> the reason why the Industrial Revolution happened in the United Kingdom between this 1750 to 1850 period is because wages were very high and there was lots of coal and then boom, it just naturally follows. Um, and uh, there, there are other of these, you know, so that you just mentioned this idea of a bunch of people tinkering and the tinkering hypothesis. And for, for me, as somebody who hasn't thought very much about this, I think, first of all, I realized that I hadn't thought very much about that. Mm-hmm. And I thought I had imbibed these, yeah, that seemed about right. That seemed what I remembered, you know, yeah, the wages were high. No, no, but I didn't really ask myself, why did the Industrial Revolution happen? In the, in the United Kingdom as opposed to somewhere else, I guess my attitude was, well, kind of well had to have happened somewhere at some point, so it, yeah, sure, it, had, it was arbitrary. But then when I'm reading your book, I think, well, that's actually not really true, that it didn't necessarily have to have happened uh, at any one particular place. In fact, you can, you can unwind that argument all the way back and say you could have imagined in a possible world if people were just tinkering, that might have happened in ancient Rome, might have happened you know, thousands of years before. And so that gets you starting to think about what the precursors necessarily were. And this brings you into this Newtonian worldview and the systematic law-like nature of things and this notion of applying technology. So I should ask a question. Is, it, is, it, um, is, this, is this idea, first of all, this idea of the first knowledge economy, this economic historical view that you're uh, emphatically and convincingly railing against throughout mm-hmm. this book, um, it, is that something that, uh, that was always around when you were, like years before, when you first started studying uh, the history of these things and is, and is still the prevailing view? Is that something that most people still believe in? Now I think the, um, the statue has cracked and there are economic historians increasingly concerned with culture and with trying to figure out how do you fit cultural explanations into this phenomenon of industrial development. I don't know whether that's answering your question, but as I take it, you what what still prevails, I would say, among the majority of practitioners of economic history is a, a desire to find the single, the sufficient cause. The silver bullet, as it were. Whether it's abundant coal, high wages, um, semi-literate tinkerers, there's got to be one thing that really causes this. And I think this is a very flawed way of doing history. Now, people will turn around and say, oh, you're, you're saying it's the science is the key. And I'm saying it's one key but you can't understand what happens on the ground unless you look at these people as thinking entrepreneurs, capitalists, who are trying to work out problems and they're bringing to bear the knowledge that they've learned in school, in private study groups, in scientific societies, and all kinds of places. If you leave that out of the story, you impoverish it. But 
So that makes a lot of sense, and this notion of complexity, right? I said this is what I was trying to imply that things are just more complex. That's one of the one of the the, the features. There are a whole lot of different features. But in your book, you ask the obvious, at least to my mind, questions, which is okay. Let's test this thesis by looking at what happens elsewhere. What happens in France? What happens in Belgium? What happens in the Netherlands? And you find that this this template of high wages, all this coal lying around, it doesn't actually hold hold true. There are exceptions all over the place. There's some broad generalities. Obviously, you need to have some access to coal, otherwise you're, you're not going to be able to do this. Obviously, you need to have some economic incentive to be able to do this. Um, but but it's, it's a bit confusing to me as to, uh, as to the fact that if you have a thesis and it doesn't really hold up very well by looking at the obvious points of comparison, then it's kind of time to change your thesis, right? Like, so I come from a scientific background. So you have a theory and you say, okay, my theory is whatever, something will fall at such and such a rate. And you look here and you look there and you look all over the place as you're looking to the low countries and, you're, and, and as you're looking to France and as you're comparing it with, with England and Scotland and whatever. Um, and it doesn't really hold together. So I guess my question is, do other people, um, do that sort of analysis and twist things around so that they're able to maintain the same thesis, or do they not even bother looking? Generally speaking, um, with the again, with the exception of someone like Joel Mulcair, most economic historians, um, first of all, look for what can be quantified in, in a particular site. So they'll look for figures on wages, yeah. or they'll look for uh, coal extraction, or whatever. Very few actually go on the ground and look to see what's being taught in the educational system, what what are in, what's in the textbooks, um, what's taken out of the textbooks at a certain period and put back in the textbooks. That that kind of work that is very qualitative. You actually have to go into archives and sit and read and read and read to find out what's going on. That is not the kind of research that economic historians are taught. That's not their metier, which is fine. But there's a different way of doing history, and the way I'm doing it is, I think, I hope, closer to the way human beings experience the world. Well, okay, so you're the historian and I'm not, but it, it seems to me there's a role for people to do that analysis and a very important role to collect that data to to actually look at what the numbers are and you do some of this uh, in your book and i'm sure there's a lot more that could be done comparing wages here looking at purchasing power looking at rates of exchange looking at incentives all the rest of that return on investment all of that that's obviously extremely important but that seems to me to be different than coming up with a grand thesis like this is why the Industrial Revolution happened and this is why it happened over here. That, there seems like a huge disconnect to me. It seems like if you're going to focus on that, that's an important thing to be doing, but, but it ain't some grand synthetic thesis on, on why something as significant and as major as happened, uh, such as the Industrial Revolution, could have possibly happened. So I'm just not sure how they get away with that, but I'm preaching to the choir here. Oh, yeah, so, right. <laughs> well, one way, they, if, you, if you say to Bob Allen, I'm not that I've ever met Bob Allen, but if you said to him, um, okay, let's say you're right, that wages are highest in Britain. Now, in fact, that's not true. They're very high in the Dutch Republic, right. as high, if not higher. Um, 
these people living and breathing in Britain in the 1770s and the 1780s, they don't know that their wages are higher than anywhere else in the world. It's not like they can take a factory here and just outsource it or something right, like that. Right, right. They don't know anything about this. They're working on the ground with what they've got. And one of the basic principles of economic life is that you always try to minimize your costs wherever you can and increase your profits. This is not rocket science. I mean, yeah. So to say that, there's, that the high wages in Britain are, first of all, distinctive, and they're not, and second of all, that, that is the motivating factor. Re re relies upon a, a more fundamental assumption which often goes unstated in the economic history literature, and that is that people are driven by the numbers. They understand immediately that something is quote-unquote too expensive, and so they go about finding ways to make it less expensive. Right. Not a lot of evidence for this. You look at the figures of what's being paid to coal miners in 18th century Newcastle, nothing's changing. Wages are very low and remain low throughout the century. So the whole notion that it's the high cost of wages, what you discover when you really go into a mine or several mines and look at the wage structure and look at what the engineers say about their expenses, the single biggest expense that they keep recording is the cost of horses. Feeding the horses. You know, it, it, it. Now, the cost of feeding a horse in France versus the cost of feeding a horse in Britain cannot be that different. Sure. So if these guys are not telling you that what's killing me in this factory is the cost of wages, you know, it's, I've got to do what, everything I can to reduce the labor force. And so I'm going to mechanize, I'm going to, they're not saying that. Mm. So you have to begin with an assumption that certain things move human beings more than others and they have an instinctive feel for a high wage setting and will do whatever they have to do to undo that. This is a, a, an assumption about the way human beings work that I don't think life experience bears out. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about education. Um, you talk a lot about formal education systems in this book, compare them and contrast them in different countries, what different countries were doing, how, how it was being affected by the other things that were going on, who was obviously in charge, Horace Revolution and so forth. Um, but you also talk about societies that were founded and you talk about uh, um, the, the education um, that was conveyed informally, either by, tr by traveling people who were coming through and educating people, or by what societies were promulgating. Um, and one of the things that, that I noticed that I hadn't really appreciated was the role of the apprentice in, in, in the UK. I mean, there is this, at that time, there, there is this sense that uh, somebody would go off, I think it was whatever, Watt went off to become a carpenter or something, or he was a working as a clockmaker. Clock he was apprenticed to a clockmaker, yeah. And, and just this notion of, as it were, getting one's hands dirty because um, 
because you can talk about being imbued with uh, Newtonian synthesis and you can understand the law-like nature of reality and blah, 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 and the fact that you can predict comets and you can predict tides and isn't that wonderful and, and bringing the heavens down to the earth and all that. But speaking from personal experience, unless you're actually out there. Absolutely. No contender, and And that's part of the, the whole ethos, it seems, of the time, that, that, that the, the British were really focusing on that as a way of, uh, I don't know, it wasn't deliberate perhaps, but it, it, certainly was a, it certainly was a route that people were taking that wound up having this enormous influence. I think it's incontrovertible that um, the British apprenticeship system was possibly the best in Europe. But it's also the case that the Dutch apprentice system was also very important and very active and, and very enforcing. And it was further reinforced by the power of the guilds because the guilds remained right. strong in the Dutch Republic. Which is why the salaries were so high, you were mm -hmm. saying as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't want to take away from the apprentice experience at all as being important. I think the, the uh, example I would use would be Watt himself. Watt is apprentice to a clockmaker and he begins life cutting out numbers for the faces of clocks. At night, he has a tutor who's tutoring him in Skrafsanda, Desaguliers, in the basic Newtonian textbooks of the period. When he finishes his apprenticeship, he goes out and presents himself to the world as an engineer. He knows trigonometry. He knows Newtonian science. Did he get all that from his apprenticeship? No, he did not. Right. But what the apprenticeship did give him was that seven-year period, which he had some time to learn all these other things. And against this combination of factors. It's, it's, so you, re you really get the sense of, of a microcosm of what you were saying before, that you really need to have both to be able to move forwards. But they were both getting that. And not only that, but the, the, the education, it seems, was valued sociologically to the extent that, that it was encouraged um, and, and, well, in the air, perhaps. Is that a fair way of saying it? Yes. I think if, you, if your father was uh, a man of business and he, there was a little bit of surplus money in the household, you would send your sons to be apprenticed. No, you know, it was just a smart thing to do. Yeah. And I think that was rather universally recognized as a uh, something to, to, to do for a young man in order to give him a future. And so many, many people, I, I say that in the opening of the book, I say many of the people you're going to meet in this book were apprentices. We don't know with whom, when, because that information hasn't survived. But it's a fair assumption that most of these people were apprenticed at some point. Right. So there's the notion of, of it being a well-recognized and established way of transmitting information, of having a career, of being integral members of society, and so forth. But there's also, again, in the using this idea of many different aspects that need to be taken into account, you also talk a lot about uh, the cultural aspects that are played by religion, specifically Unitarian Unitarianism, I never know, Unita Unitarianism. Unitarianism, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and, and how that was, uh, how this ethos was developed that it was okay, even encouraged, to 
go out there and make money and be productive and work hard and at the same time be be a well respected moral Christian and the impact that that had to play certainly in, in cities like Birmingham and Manchester and all these other and all these other places was that so unique from what was happening in other Protestant centers well Unitarianism is a uniquely Anglo-American phenomenon I don't think you find Unitarianism in German Protestant lands that I'm familiar with, and I know you don't find it in the Dutch Republic. Mm. Um, you may now, but I'm saying in the 18th sure. century. Um, it is rather distinctively British. It very quickly becomes uh, American. You know, it, comes, it comes over to the New World, and by the 1750s, there are Unitarian chapels up and down the colonies. Um, and it's a, it's a religion that has not yet received the kind of historical treatment that it needs. It was always, in the literature, treated as, quote-unquote, rational dissent, whatever that means, you know, as if everybody else is irrational. You know, what does that mean, rational dissent? And um, it, many historians have repeated um, the old line of Erasmus Darwin that uh, Unitarianism provided a feather to catch a falling Christian. Uh, this is, is all wrong. The whole thing is wrong. You know? <laughs> and uh, if I were to do another book, I would do it on Unitarianism. What would you do? Oh, I, I would, do, I would go to England and go through the... I mean, there are huge numbers of Unitarian archives just sitting there and read sermons and read prayer books and read letters and diaries and try to get closer to this mentality of the Unitarian. I have written so, a, a, a bit about it in an article um, on Joseph Priestley. Right. So, so let's talk a little bit about that because that, that seems to be an important aspect. There were some things that confused me. So one is, as I understand it, Unitarianism uh, started well, it was one of these sects that believed in denial of the Trinity. It believed in uh, some aspects of, I don't know, the physical world or, or paying attention to the physical world or to some extent. Maybe that was a consequence. I don't really know. But it, I seem to remember reading, so maybe I'm wrong, but I seem to remember reading that, in, at least in the beginning, there was an absorption of this predestination business within Unitarianism, which made very little sense to me. So, am I, first of all, am I wrong with that, or...? Yeah, the, all Protestants, all, without exception, have to have some understanding of predestination. They have to come to terms with it, to repudiate it, right. to embrace it. But it is one of the central problems of Protestantism. And once you remove the sacramental solace, the, the possibility of salvation, through good works and through sacraments. You leave the individual in relation to God, having to figure out how to negotiate that relationship. There are all kinds of answers to that question. One is predestination, which is to say, all right, I know that God knows that I'm predestined. Um, and it's not accidental that in certain Protestant countries, insofar as we know these figures, suicide rate was higher. You would think. Yeah, I mean, 
So this is it started with Calvin, right? Or did it start did it start before before that? Um, predestination is Calvin's right. major intellectual achievement, um, but it, it's it's lurking. Luther should have addressed it, but he refused to. Really? Yeah, he, he did, never embraced predestination. I don't see why. Pre, so, so this is maybe this is part of my problem because it, um, a bit of a sidelight. But I, I think in terms of people's motivations to go ahead and be integral members of society and produce and be moral and all that, I think it's relevant to what we're saying. So personally, it always struck me as completely wacky. I, I never understood why it was logically necessary at all. You can say we, we believe in the Bible. You can still believe that uh, uh, we, we rebelling against the, the Catholic Church, uh, this is the main text. You go and you study this text. You understand the word of, the word of God. Um, live a good moral life in accordance with the tenets of this particular book, and at the end of the day, uh, we'll see what happens, and the all-knowing God will judge you one way or the other. No predestination that's involved there. Um, it, once you say, when you're born, you're either going to go to heaven or you're going to go to hell, and that's already predetermined, then uh, it seems to take all the motivation out of behaving like a good, moral, upright person right away. So it's, it, it strikes me as just a completely wacky thing. I've never understood it. So mm -hmm. explain to me why it's not completely wacky. Well, first of all, it's absolutely true that God knows everything. Okay. Always. By definition, all the he's time. an omniscient being. Right. So, okay. so he knows whether you're going to be saved or damned. He just knows that because he knows everything. Oh, I see. Okay, so logically that's where the inevitability comes yeah, from. Yeah, yeah. Only what Calvin does is, is take this notion and run with it and say, you cannot bargain with God. You cannot... Now, part of this is, is his way of undercutting good works once and for all. In other words, you can go out and help any number of little old ladies across the street and it is going to get you nowhere with God. You should do good things because Christians do good things, but you are not going to get your salvation that way. How are you going to get your salvation? Calvin says, by trying to live as best you can as a moral Christian and trusting in God's mercy, but knowing full well that you have no right to God's mercy. So, sure, you might, not, you might not have a right, but I mean, this whole idea of living as well as you can it seems like the same argument applies. But anyway, you're not Calvin, so I'm not... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the, the other thing that this undercuts, this notion of predestination undercuts, Luther laid, laid enormous emphasis on grace freely given. You know, it, it was like an infusion into the soul. Mm. And it was, grace saves you, nothing else saves you. Grace saves you, and it's, it's a gift from God. How do you receive this grace? How do you know this grace is present? Well, suppose you hear God talking to you. Could this not indeed be the sign of God's grace? Mm. Sure enough, within two years of Newton, of Luther, tacking up the 95 theses on the door of the church, assuming he did actually tack it up, you've got prophets arising from the lower orders coming to Luther and saying, I have the Spirit of God within me. How do I know this? Because I can feel it. it. Yeah. I have this inner light. I, I know that God is with me. Well, th that radical reformation is very dangerous to 
what Luther and Calvin are trying to do. And Calvin cuts these people off at the knees by saying, I don't care who's talking to you. It's irrelevant. This has all been set. Right. And don't imagine that because you hear somebody talking to you that that's going to assure you your salvation. Nothing assures you your salvation because you cannot, you cannot be so arrogant as to assume that you know God's will. Mm. So it, it's a way of, of setting limits and parameters around what the Christian can do or not do. You can read the Bible, but don't think if you go off and get illuminations from spirits that this is going to do anything for you. Any more than reading the Bible is going to do it. There's nothing that's going to do it. Right. So uh, let's, let's get back, because this was my diversion, let's get back to Unitarianism and the impact that it played. So my understanding of, uh, um, uh, of, of a thesis or one aspect of what you're saying is that one contributing factor... Uh, in the development of the Industrial Revolution, an important contributing factor, was this, was this cultural social milieu that was created with the strength of Unitarianism that enabled people, um, certainly like Joseph Priestley, like James Watt later on, uh, uh, well, Priestley would be preaching this and, 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 and Watt and Bolton and all these other people would go ahead and, and move forwards within this cultural milieu saying, um, Yes, you can be a good Christian, a good member of society, and at the same time be making money, be moving forwards in, in, um, uh, with worldly things, be working hard. The, what we would now in many ways call this Protestant work ethic, this notion of, of working hard, saving, not being luxurious, but uh, an honest day's work to be able to further um, not only your own standard of living, but also the benefit uh, to benefit the people around you, to actually be benefiting society. Um, I mentioned before that I had been talking to David Hollinger a little bit, and he, uh, as you well know, talks a great deal about uh, this, the American strain of this several centuries later, and the, the, what he calls the ecumenical Protestant movement, and that culture. And that culture is very similar to what, what you were writing about in your book. You see the origins of it, perhaps, really, in, in, in what you're talking about. Um, so is this as important as I am going on about, I guess, is question number one. And question number two is, why didn't something like that happen in the Dutch Republic, for example, which was also Protestant? Well, more than Protestant, it was, Cal it was Calvinist. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you do not, it's true, you do not, well, you get Mennonites, and they are a form of inner life, inner light people who are um, an alternative to the strict Calvinism. I mean, one of the things that, that happens in the early 18th century in Protestant Europe, and it's happening quite generally for different reasons in different places, there's a growing reluctance to embrace specific, what's called specific predestination. General predestination, that yes, there is this predestination, it just is because God is the way he is. But to, to apply it to oneself is beside the point. So there's a, a, a growing repudiation of this, you know, I'm in this struggle with God and now, that survives. You can find plenty of people. There's a wonderful book just came out by a former student of mine, 
called The Watchful Clothier. And the student is Matt Cadane. And the book is about, it's uh, based upon a 46-volume personal spiritual diary of a mid-18th century Leeds clothing maker. And his entire life is struggling with the question of whether as he grows more and more prosperous, is he risking his own salvation? Now, he's a believer in specific predestination, clearly. Right. But there were a lot of people around him, including he, uh, towards the end of his life in the 1760s, he hears people coming to the chapels preaching essentially a Unitarian doctrine. And they are saying the, the notion of the Trinity is irrational and it is further irrational because it makes Christ be further from us, not closer to us. So this, I think, is very much what's going on in the Unitarian movement, that it, the, it increases Protestant fervor by making Christ into a human being. Yeah. And, and, and it undercuts, it completely renders predestination irrelevant. I want to talk a little bit about um, Northern England versus Southern England. Mm. So the sense that I have um, is the following. Here's my thesis, so tell me if this is right or wrong. You talk about how, um, something I, I certainly didn't know, you talk about how if you were non-Anglican, you couldn't actually go to Oxbridge, which I was completely unaware of. Um, and there is this sense of the Anglican ritual, Latin-strewn world, as it were, of Oxford and Cambridge that studied that would only looking at the texts of Cicero and looking at the humanities first and foremost in their own particular way at that time, um, as opposed to um, a rather different cultural world of these Unitarian-driven dissenters in, in cities like Birmingham and Manchester and Leeds and Newcastle and, and, and the rest of that. Um, is it is it fair to say that because of what we've just been talking about, um, that's a contributing factor why the Industrial Revolution happened in the north of England as opposed to in the south of England? That notwithstanding the fact that Newton himself, of course, was in Cambridge, <laughs> um, it really took a, a different perspective, a different community, a different milieu in, in, in the north for that to happen? Well, again, um if, if I were to explain why the North versus the South, I would, I would bring in a lot of different factors. Sure. Um, Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Southern counties, the home counties, are agriculturally among the richest in the world. To this day, they produce a, a, a yield that is incredible. So big farming dominates the South in a way it does not dominate the North. There's not much you can grow around Newcastle. Um, that's one piece of the story. The other piece is that the Northern towns like Birmingham, is they are unincorporated. That is, they do not have a charter from the Crown. Basically, they can be run by whoever is important in the community. So there isn't an Anglican establishment in many of those towns. 
And then coal is very important. Yeah. You know, it's, it is important. And then it's also the case that there are probably numerically more non-Anglicans, i.e. dissenters, in these northern unincorporated towns than what you would find, say, in, well, in London. London doesn't have an industrial revolution. I mean, it, it's a totally different animal. It's a commercial center. It's a governmental center. Uh, nor does Bristol and Norwich, who are, that are the other big cities in this period. Norwich, again, it's, its entire economy is dominated by the agricultural lands surrounding it. Um, Bristol is dominated by uh, the Atlantic trade. So as time goes on, you know, by, say, 1820, the industrial development that has occurred in those northern towns is so so significant that it leaves the South behind. The South never industrializes, really. Uh, but when you look for the sort of turning points in the mid-18th century, I think there's, there's a lot of factors, and dissent is one of them, but also um, the nature of the agriculture, the nature of the land, the nature of government in these towns, um, access to rivers. Right. So let's keep playing the counterfactual game a little bit more. <laughs> um, uh, another point that you mentioned when you turn to France across the channel is that um, there was a great recognition. Of course, France was, was, a, was a key player, arguably the key player in the Enlightenment. Um, and post-revolution, there was an understanding that we were going to change the education system, that we were going to certainly um, give far more credence and emphasis on science and scientific ways of thinking and rationality and all the rest of this. There were all sorts of reforms that happened. Um, and there was, uh, I think the Ecole Polytechnique was, what, 94, 95 or something like well, that? Well, it's reform. It, it's it reform. starts it before start, that. Yeah, it, was, yeah, it, was it starts mid-century. Oh, okay. Anyway, so the... The, the real one, the, <laughs> the, the, the maybe the more scientific one. You mentioned that that uh, military engineers always had a, a significant Absolutely. place, yes. but but there was a, a, a broad-based sense that this these were the reforms that needed to be done, and then uh, from 1815 to 1830, uh, after Napoleon falls from power, there's and the monarchy is restored. There is this impact from the Catholic Church when everything just kind of gets re-rigidified and and. And all of these reforms basically get thrown out the window and, and, and put on hold, as it were, until at least 1830 or thereabouts when they get going again. So my counterfactual game is, if, if this didn't happen, um, is the claim that France would have been able to catch up much faster in terms of this? Or were there other factors that were also at play? Well, I'm sure there were other factors. Sure, other significant or equally significant right. factors. Um, well, the only sort of counterfactual that would prove the argument to be that, yes, if France would have caught up is Belgium. And the Belgian educational system can, it accepts the reforms of the French Revolution and then not in this period does it get repudiated. I mean, it's a struggle about the secular nature of the system all through the 19th century. But they don't actually take science out of the curriculum. What shocked me, and I, you know, I've been in a lot of archives, and I was shocked when I went into the Department of the North to look at what was being taught in the schools and the lycée and college from about 1814 onward. And I'm looking at these records, and 
in college after college after college. There's no, there's no science. There's no math. They just took it out of the curriculum. There's, you know, or or they fell away because nobody cared. I mean, I I don't know why this happened, but it happened. Hmm. And it's um, it's consonant with the prevailing ideology, which was, as the Archbishop of uh, Paris so kindly put it in a, in a letter that was never published in the time that science was one of the causes of the French Revolution. I mean, this is an actual letter that was sent in 1812 to the ministry. So had that not happened, had the French continued with these reforms that enhanced scientific education and uh, introduced more and more machinery into the actual school and the classroom, I think they would have had a, a better go at it than they had. I mean, they were significantly retarded by 1850. I, I guess what the thing which is rattling around in my mind is that I think that the French have had an, an exemplary record in terms of pure mathematics. Mm -hmm. So if you look at pure mathematics, um, then it's 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 pretty impressive and remarkable what, ha what has been achieved over the last 300 years in France, and, and even to this day. I mean, the, there's a very strong pure mathematical tradition. And so I certainly appreciate the idea of the Catholic Church reasserting their control over the educational program and, and all of the things that you say. But I wonder if there isn't something else going on in terms of pure versus applied and uh, the reputation and the orientation, the cultural reputation and orientation towards the, the, well, the, the, the abstract forms of mathematics as opposed to the application. Because as I was saying before, um, they really are very, very different. Just because you happen to be gifted in advanced mathematics doesn't mean that, that you necessarily have any insight or proclivity or orientation or desire to, to start applying these things and, and, and moving forwards. One is really a cultural, economic, societal motivation, uh, or, or if you happen to be an engineer who likes to tinker and all mm -hmm. the rest of that, but the other is something quite different. So you can, you can imagine a society which is incredibly literate mathematically, which doesn't do a damn thing mm -hmm. <laughs> in terms of actually producing things. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if that might not have some, something to play uh, in, a, in a place like France. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it, it is true that the purity of mathematics and the purity of philosophy and all of these abstract skills are in France to this day associated with the highly intelligent who can be gleaned out of the school system and put into the grande école. I mean, we in this country would never tolerate a universe where everybody who's in government and, you know, has gone to one of four. Of course, that many. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, that system is a throwback to essentially an ancien regime culture. And whether that's a factor in the French relative disinterest in industry, it may be. It may be. Yeah. Um, responses. I cut you off before when you were talking about responses. So you've written three of these books. <laughs> and, and they're, 
again, from, from my sense, uh, ignorant but objective, um, it seems that there is this notion of more things in heaven and earth are actually causing this. We have to look at, we have to go beyond these simplistic theses. We have to look at the broad socio-cultural political background. We have to look at education. We have to look at economics. We have to look at all these things more carefully. Um, it, is that gaining ground? I think so. I think so to the extent that I, I'm hearing about conferences devoted to the question of economics and culture. There's a growing sense among uh, graduate students in economic history that um, the old models leave something to be desired. Uh, I don't follow the developments in economic history that closely, but my sense is that um, there is a, a sea change going on. So often authors don't independently or exclusively independently choose their own titles. Um, so I want to ask you one question and then a follow-up. So my question is, was the first knowledge economy, that was all your idea or was it your publisher's idea or to call it that? That's a good question. It might very well have come from my Cambridge editor. I'd have to go back into my computer and see what I was calling those chapters early on. But are you happy with the title? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, it's fine. good. That's good enough. So let me ask. <laughs> so my next question is, uh, as you could probably guess, the implications of all of this. So I realize that you're a historian. You don't prognosticate, at least as part of your day job. Uh, nor do you set public policy as part of your day job. But there are obvious implications of what it is that you're saying, uh, it seems to me. So this idea of establishing the right cultural milieu in order to make progress, mm -hmm. broadly defined. This idea of education uh, as being very, very important, uh, of, of human capital being very, very important. Mm -hmm. These are words that you will hear when you pick up the New York Times today. Um, and is there something that we might be able to learn, broad, broad brush, or apply, or reconsider, or uh, be able to bear in mind as we think on the public policy side today, from what, uh, what happened between 1750 and 1850? Well, I think this, this rethinking of, of what's needed today is already going on in the sense that the UN, every three or four years, uh, asks surveys all of the, uh, I think it's 120, I forget how many nations that are now considered to be in need of development. And one of the very first questions the UN survey asks is what is being taught in science and technology from early on right through to universities. So those and those uh, booklets the UN produces are available. Sure. Yeah. Similarly, um, we're hearing this in public policy debates all the time, the need for education in science and math. Obama was on about this just, I think, last week. Yeah, but we're hearing, so it's easy to say those words. Right, it's right. easy to say STEM. It's easy to say these things. Oh, we need more of this. Because what they're really saying is we need more Googles and we need more this. And we all know that we're living in an age we need more phones and better phones. If you look around you, the things, that, the objects that are driving economic productivity are, are for the most part, 
uh, not jewelry or whatever. I mean, for the most part, they're technological uh, objects. And so there is some sense of that. But that's a very different question from how we should teach it, how it should be uh, uh, culturally appreciated, how we should move forward as a society, not only in terms of education, but also getting back to this notion of this Unitarian ethos, right? Because these guys, as part of their belief in harnessing um, the laws of nature and being able to apply it, they also were trying to do something for their fellow man. They also were spurning luxury and gratuitous shows of wealth and, and they were saving and all the rest of this, all the rest of this aspect. So I'm thinking even more broadly than just, yeah, we should have more engineering schools or yeah, we should be able to do that. I think um, you're whistling in the graveyard. If you're going to get white Americans to askew cultures of luxury and ostentation and um, consumption, it's a, it's a lost cause, forget mm -hmm. it. I think where you're going to see this kind of entrepreneurial spirit, the discipline, the desire to do good is among minority groups, people who now constitute, well, at UCLA, the plurality of our students are Asian American. I mean, you can engage in all kinds of facile generalizations, but the reality is that on the whole, they work harder. Yeah. They just do. But there are exceptions, of course, of course, of course, but the, the, sure. they, they bring with them a different culture from what is in the mainstream of American culture now. And I, and I don't think this is going to change much. I think it's got to come from foreigners who are coming with their own agenda, their own culture, who will assimilate into American society, I am sure, but in the process will change it. But so eschewing uh, luxury... I'm with you, and I'm not suggesting that everybody go back to be, or, or, or not even that they should go back, but that this will be part of any official promulgation from the powers that be. But on the other hand, there is a very strong philanthropic tradition in this country, and it's very unique, and it still exists, and there's still this sense that, uh, that you, you talk to captains of industry and they'll tell you that my job is to make as much money as possible and then reinvest it for future generations. And that, that's also part of this legacy, I suspect, or, or whether or not it can be traced back maybe as immaterial, but it, 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 it certainly exists in this culture. It's part of the fabric of what's actually going on. So we talk about Google. I mean, they, their mantra, whether or not they live up to it, is, is another question, is don't be evil, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There is a moral component to at least what they're pretending, if not what they're actually doing. There are philanthropic foundations all over the place. I'm just wondering if there might be an opportunity to play on that a little bit more, uh, recognizing what's been going on before and tying that to more of a secular, naturalistic applied uh, physics uh, agenda. I, I could well imagine a, a foundation that wants to put money into trying to develop curriculum that looks more like what, what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of, the, one of the things that we have done right in this country, unlike Europe, and I mean all of Western Europe, is that we give tax write-offs for charity. This doesn't happen. Mm. In France, the Netherlands, Britain, you know, whereas here, if you give, depending on your tax bracket, 
$20,000, the government winds up giving nine of it. And, and that is an enormous advantage. And we, 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 we are desperately got to keep that. Because these kinds of innovations, I agree, are going to come from private sources, foundations, entrepreneurs. It's not going to come out of your mainstream educational infrastructure, which is basically trying just to cope. Yeah. We talked, uh, I talked a little bit about comparisons with other countries that you mentioned in your book. You mentioned France, you mentioned Belgium, you mentioned Holland, or the Netherlands, sorry. Um, and, and of course the United Kingdom and looking at this. There's the broader question as people are now looking more and more at global history of, well, why did this phenomenon happen in, the, in, in Europe? as opposed to somewhere else in the world. Uh, I mean, there are obvious, obvious the, the, the British Empire was, was fairly significant. And, and I'm, uh, but you could, you could imagine looking at this question in an even broader way in terms of what the influences might have been that led there and comparing and contrasting with other places where you might have imagined playing with these counterfactuals. Is that something that interests you at all? It does and it doesn't. Uh, the, the thing that troubles me about these kinds of global questions, why Europe, you know, why not China in the 17th century or whatever, the people who ask these questions by and large do not read Chinese or Japanese or, or whatever. They, they don't really know those cultures. And so the, the answers they're putting together would ring about as true to somebody in those cultures who really knows them as it does for when I read somebody writing about uh, the Dutch Republic in the early modern period who doesn't know Dutch. What are we talking about here? We're, yeah. we're taking everything from secondary sources. Yeah. We're trying to tell a story about a place we really don't know. Um, and that seems to me to characterize a great deal of what goes on in the so-called global approach. Has, has the field of history changed? Is it changing to the extent that there's more of a focus on these so-called global approaches? Are there other changes that are interesting to you, depressing to you? Um, well, I think one change, and it's, it's very, very interesting, is that um, the national histories, qua national histories, are falling gradually into disfavor. Um, so we're, I'm seeing job ads all the time for people in British history who do the Atlantic world, or people in French history who can do Francophone Africa, and so on and so forth. Dutch history has benefited enormously from this because, of course, it's among the very first global empires. And so Dutch history is in, in this milieu of flourishing. Um, how far we can go in escaping the national histories is unclear. I mean, certainly, uh, American history is alive and well and thriving, and um, I don't see us finding a way to... Uh, ideally, one would like to do North American history in Canada and the United States, and, but uh, it's, not, it's not happening, I think. Do I see depressing trends? Um, there's too much adjunct labor, there's too much um, farming out, there's, 
but the the financials of the American Academy are very much a result of larger economic forces and the attitudes of the electorate. Yeah. Is, is there enough of a societal appreciation of the importance of historical research? Very hard for me to for me to say. I mean, certainly, um, I have been treated extremely well by the American Academy, and my work has been appreciated. And I think, in general, that is still true. Um, are there efforts being made to downplay the humanities? Some people say that this is happening all over the country. Yeah, but I'm talking to you. What do you What do you? Yeah, say? I I don't see it. I I don't see it in my own world. I don't see anyone for a second suggesting that what we're, we're doing in the social sciences or the humanities is inferior to what's being done uh, in the hard science, so-called hard sciences. And there's no trend of dumbing down or, or, or anything like that, that that you see? Dumbing down. Again, it depends upon the circumstances. It depends upon the kind of students that you get. Are we giving more A's now than we were 50 years ago? And I have been teaching now almost 50 years. Um, I'm not, but maybe somebody else is. I don't know. I mean, it depends a lot on um, the writing skills. For us, writing is absolutely critical. And one thing that has changed in the last 20 years is that writing has improved. The, the high schools are doing a much better job Hmm. That's good. I, I don't hear that very often. I know, but I, it's, it's, this is what I'm seeing. That's very good. Yeah. And the field of historical scholarship, um, in terms of how one goes about as a professional historian, one's day job. So when I talked to John Elliott, he was, he was talking about how modern technology is, is both helping and to some extent hindering the historical process to the extent that... Uh, uh, he gave an example of, of, of the fact that uh, one could be sitting at home and, and looking at documents where computer imagery would remove ink stains or remove blots from things, and you could actually mm -hmm. have access to documents that you wouldn't have had access to before. Mm -hmm. The ease of being able to sit at home and, and, and have access to a tremendous variety of, of, of documented material, which normally would require an enormous amount of time and effort and travel and all the rest of that, mm -hmm. and that that was a wonderful thing for a historian. And yet at the same time, the fact that this very uh, development or these very developments reduces the opportunities for people to go into a culture, into a society, into the, mm -hmm. uh, into the world of, of archives and immerse oneself physically as well as mentally in, in the culture and that this might have some deleterious effects. He wasn't whining about it or mm -hmm. complaining about mm -hmm. it, but just commenting that, that in all likelihood that's bound to have some, uh, some impact on, on the business of historical research. Do you see it that way as well, or do you see it differently? Um, I think John's partly right in that the, the days are gone, I think, where historians to do any non-American topic, if you're writing in America, required you to live abroad anywhere from a year to, I mean, I lived, all told, I've lived six or seven years in Europe. Um, you can vastly reduce the amount of time that you have to spend, but I don't know anybody yet, 
any of my students or any of the students I talk to or in those committees I sit where they've just stopped going to those archives entirely. They just don't go for as long. Mm -hmm. But I think you, you're still getting a kind of immersion that has to happen because you have, still have to go. Yeah. I mean, it may be that you know, we're in a world 20, 30 years from now where everything is online. That will be a different sort of thing. But right now, you still have to go. Tell me a little bit more about the book on Unitarianism that you're thinking mm. about. First of all, are you, are you just thinking about writing it or are you actually writing it? No, I'm writing a book now on the Enlightenment, a general book on the Enlightenment that I'm calling the Secular Enlightenment. It may be called something else before it's done. but And the first two chapters I've kind of finished, and this is on the secularization of time and the secularization of space. And saying that this sets in an, a, a new framework. In the space, the discovery of the new world the, the discovery of the globe and the discovery of the heavens, which are 16th but essentially 17th century phenomena, has an enormous impact in transforming the way Westerners can think about the world. The next chapter is going to be on the secularization of religion, and I am going to do a section in there on Unitarianism, and I may go and do some archival work. So by secularization of religion, you, you mean what? You mean the abstracting away of some of the moral components of living a good life and from, from the religious doctrine? What, what do you mean exactly? No, I mean more in the first instance of the, the removal of the importance of ritual, ceremony, uh, costume, uh, the internalization of religion. Personal as opposed to a sociological structure. Right. Okay. It, and the privatization of religion means that it becomes a place that has its own sphere. And that really is an enormous change in, mm. in European history. And I think the Unitarians are an, an extreme example of that. And I, I will talk a fair bit about them. I'll also talk about liberal Protestantism. And I want to talk about um, efforts made in Catholic Europe to try to reconcile the church with the Enlightenment. Uh, it doesn't, they don't succeed by and large, but they, there are people trying to do that. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Freemasonry because it, you know, it just fits into the, that, that whole phenomenon of, of having entirely secular rituals, you know, and Right. to the grand architect. Um, and where I go from there, I'm not sure. I haven't figured out the other four or five chapters. I, you know, These things just kind of turn up in your head, you know. Yeah. I, I have one last question that I'm pretty sure you won't be able to know the answer to, but maybe you will. It's bothered me for a very, very long time. Um, every time I go to the United Kingdom, which I do with some regularity, I find myself in a washroom, and this doesn't happen with every washroom, but it happens with enough of them to, to force me to remark upon it, where there are two taps for the hot and cold water, 
and there are two spouts. And this means practically um, that one either burns one's hands or, or one freezes one's hands. And this is 2014, and this is a country where the Industrial Revolution started, and somehow they haven't figured out yet that they have to have the one spout and mix the water in the spout before it comes out so that it's temperate under your hands. Why is that? <laughs> well, <laughs> well you, you, we, we could add to this a discussion of French plumbing, if you want. <laughs> no, 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 but the, the, yeah. the, the Industrial Revolution started in, in the United Kingdom. They were the ones who were on, on, on cock of the walk and, and uh, the steam engines and coal and trains and the whole, the whole shebang. Um, how, what, what's going on there? Um, you must have some insight. Well, I think what's happening here is that the, the factories that are producing these things are still doing well. They're still making money. How? How is that possible? They don't have any foreign competition because probably... Because nobody else in the world wants this crazy thing. Right. The people... <laughs> right. And, and, and probably there's a, a, an import tax on, on American equipment, probably. I mean, I'm not, I don't know a lot about yeah. Well, I'm Plumbing getting it way outside of your comfort zone, but this is just driving me crazy, this thing. Yeah. No, I, I mean, we put in a new bathroom downstairs, and this is 15 years ago, and I don't remember why, but we wound up buying hardware from a British company that mm. was made outside of Manchester, actually. And this stuff was the worst stuff I've ever... <laughs> I mean, shoddy. It gives a whole new meaning to shoddy. And, and it was being sold in this luxury shop here in Beverly Hills, and you know we had a contract with them, and so they gave us this sort of at half price, and I see why they gave it to us at half price. You know, one of the, it's an old saw that industrializing late can almost be as beneficial as industrializing early. And you put these factories, you put this infrastructure into place, and then you don't change anything for mm. decades sometimes. For centuries. Yeah. I mean, it, it, in the late 19th century, there were steam engines working in factories all over Britain that had been put in 50, 60 years young, earlier. They were not the state of the art by any means, shape, or force, but the people who had these factories with these engines were making a nice profit. Thank you very much. They didn't want to expand. They didn't want to become global. They were quite content. You know, again, many of this is sort of family business. Uh, this company, I forget the name of it, it's down in the shower, Ruggle or something, Ruggle, Ruggle. I'll bet you it's a family business. I'll bet you it's not on the open stock market. And they've been feeding generations off this equipment that once was probably state of the art. Right. <laughs> but it's now a piece of junk. <laughs> so that's the best I can do. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. Uh, anything else? Anything I missed? Anything you want to add? Well, we have not talked about women in the historical profession. Right. And I, I don't know whether I'm the person to do that, but someone needs to do that. Oh, well, you're right here. Okay, here I am. This has been a struggle of monumental proportions. I mean, don't for a second imagine when you talk to a woman my age in the profession that she has had an easy time of it because of gender. I mean... When I was in graduate school, I just went to London to uh, commemorate the life of Helly Kunigsberger, 
Koenigsberger and Elliot were uh, great friends and whatnot, and Helly was my teacher. And one of the first things I said at the round table was, the great thing about Helly was that he didn't hit on you. He left you alone. He treated you like any, like a, uh, men and women, they were all the same. He did not think that he had some sort of seniorial rights. And the very fact that that's worth commenting on as a unique case is uh, the exactly, same Exactly, exactly. That there was so much of that going on that, I mean, where I had a, uh, I was a teaching assistant to a lovely man, Pierce Williams, historian of science, who openly said and didn't care who heard him and he was not being mean, he said, there will never be a woman hired in this department over my dead body. When I started in the 60s, there was not a major research university in this country, in the history department, that had a tenured woman. Wow, in the 60s? 60s. And you, you were telling me before, in 1977. There was the first woman to be appointed a fellow at the Institute for Historical Research, the um, School of Historical Studies at the Institute for Advanced Study. It, it, somebody's got to write this all up so that we all remember what this was like. I led the floor fight at the American Historical Association in 1970 or 71, if my memory serves me, where the resolution on the floor was that every department in the country that was a member of the American Historical Association had to publicly advertise jobs. Seems like a reasonable thing to do. Yeah, but <laughs> Jack Hexter got up and, a, and he was an officer, of the, it's a, a fought this tooth and nail. And I got up and said, Jack, now you've spoken for the court, let me speak for the country. He wrote this famous book called Court and Country. These people were ruthless in defending their privileges and their right to appoint their male students to whatever job they got their hands on. And that was a part of the culture into the 1990s. We are now really only getting kind of gender balance. There still isn't a major department in the country that has 50-50 or even 40-60. But if you're, if you're a woman today, if you're, if you're doing your PhD, female PhD historian at UCLA, um, and you get your PhD and you go on the job market, are you likely to face discrimination? No, now you're likely to be um, privileged over your male counterpart because every department in the country is under a mandate from for the, more gender balance. Yeah, for more gender balance. So my female students do better by and large. Lynn, one of her very best students, spent three years from postdoc to postdoc to postdoc and he finally got a really great job at the University of Toronto. Do you do? I didn't think that you did as many because I know in the natural sciences you do postdocs all over the place. That that's now become quite standard. Yeah, to be doing postdocs yeah, and yeah. Then. Every every research university offers them now. In the historical sciences, so that there's an expectation that if you, when you get your PhD, you're going to do you do. No, no. The expectation is still that you'll go into the job market, but the the postdoc fellowship is a fallback. I see. I see, and and the. On the ground within the department, if you're a woman, a graduate student, if you're a woman faculty member, if you're in that situation, are there any issues 
by and large, for the most part, it's a, it's a convivial, congenial work environment without a great deal of discrimination. I'm not asking about UCLA in particular. I'm just saying, if one can generalize, is it the case that the work environment is, uh, in, in American universities at least, is largely sexist-free? That, would that be a fair statement? Oh, I wouldn't say it, it's sexist-free, but it's night and day to what it used to be. Does it still have any appreciable way to go, or is it basically okay now? Well, many, many, many departments, my own included, have never had a woman chair. Never had a woman chair? Mm -mm. Even now? Mm -hmm. huh. There's just um, a way in which that somehow doesn't work out. Um, Often people don't even want to be the chair. Indeed, the you have maybe, to. Maybe, maybe it's just the probity of the part of the Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> sanity, <laughs> right, right. So and on the administrative level, uh, it's still harder for women to climb up to be provost and president and that sort of thing. I mean, you remember when Drew Faust became president mm. at Harvard, it was a major event. It was in the front pages of all the newspapers. Mm. That was within the last 10 years. So there are plenty of glass ceilings out there, but they're all showing signs of cracks. And you know. So it's a very different world. Great. Anything else? Mm -mm. Thank you very much, Peg. That was wonderful. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About History, Volume 1, along with separate discussions with David Canadine, Michael Gordon, Teo Ruiz, and Andrew Wallace Hadron. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.